Well, what is up, New Journey? If you don't know, maybe now you know. We're turning eight years old this month, and uh, thank you to the Shoe Nigs for sending in a video and uh, sharing with us some of their favorite memories of being, you know, here at New Journey. Um, man, so many things I could say about the Shoe Nigs, and I'll just save that for a text or, or a letter to them. Uh, I do want to talk today uh, about dealing with deliverance from Judges chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, whatever it is you're going to use to look at God's Word, get them out and open this morning as we get ready to talk about dealing with uh, our deliverance. Um, there's all these crazy stories uh, that I could have chosen to talk about, like just amazing rescue stories, amazing stories of deliverance. But I thought this one was maybe the most interesting that I read. On November the 7th, 1907, there was a railroad engineer named Jesus Garcia. And he saved the entire village. And I'm going to butcher the enunciation here, but uh, Nakazari sounds more Japanese than... Mexican when it comes out of my mouth, but uh, Nagazari in Sonora, in Sonora, Mexico. Uh, he noticed there was a boxcar that had come to a stop in the middle of town. It was full of dynamite, and it was on fire. And so he acted quickly. He drives the boxcar outside of town, approximately 12 miles outside of town, and uh, eventually uh, the boxcar did explode. The explosion was felt 10 miles away, uh, Garcia and 12 of his fellow railroad, railroad workers were killed in that accident, but the entire village was saved. The town is now known as uh, Nakazari de Garcia, so they've uh, given him uh, the honor of having his name in the name of their town. They've honored him with a monument. I didn't know that many streets in Mexico actually bear his name. Uh, also, that in the entire country of Mexico, uh, November the 7th, is actually celebrated apparently as a national holiday named after his heroic sacrifice. Well, today we're going to talk a lot about deliverance, and we're going to talk a lot about being delivered uh, from danger by the activity and the actions really of a single hero. Uh, we're, we are, in fact, whether we realize it or not, in this room this morning in danger, right? Uh, our sin is like dynamite. Um, hell is full of flames. It is on fire. Right, And we need someone to step in and through their heroic actions deliver us. And we need to be reminded if we have been delivered that it is demanded of us once we've been delivered to go and declare that message of deliverance and let everyone know that they are welcome and invited to participate in that deliverance if they will simply just ask. So let's join there. Let's get together in Judges chapter 11. Let's read the first 28 verses and we'll come back and make some observations. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him, shall we say, other sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the, from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel and the Lord, the God of Israel gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess. And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aor and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So a lot there, but one of the questions that I was thinking about uh, when I going all the way back to, to Mr. Garcia's story uh, one of the, the issues or one of the questions I had was how did the boxcar full of dynamite just sort of randomly get in the middle of town to begin with, right? What created this need for deliverance? Well, we're going to do that, right? We're going to make sure that uh, we, we sort of start there and talk about the failures that have necessitated really our need for deliverance, right? And we'll do that by looking at uh, kind of Israel and Jephthah in the first eight verses. And I think if I had to summarize how is it that we got here where we need this deliverance? If I had to summarize it under sort of just one banner, it would be this. Unless it's an emergency, humanity tends to throw God away because he's in the way, right? The way Israel treats Jephthah is a bit of a parable for the way they have treated God. 
Um, you'd have to go back to chapter 10, but if you read chapter 10 and then chapter 11, that kind of makes more sense. The way they've been treating God lately is sort of reflected in the way they treated Jephthah. They have thrown both out of their lives. Yet when they're in trouble again, they come asking both for help. Jephthah's brothers, they kicked him out because he was in the way. He was intruding on the inheritance they wanted all for themselves. Israel gives God the boot again because he is in the way. He is intruding upon what they would prefer to do with their lives, right? We also see God um, this very way, right? We see him as in the way, as only making our lives more complicated, more difficult, more laborious. If God would just get out of our way, dot, 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 until we need him, <laughs> right? It's a fire extinguisher, break glass in case of emergency view of God. We want him to be nearby in case we need him, but not so front and center in our, uh, front and center in our lives as to be in the way of our day-to-day -day activities. God's like a parachute, right? We hope we never need him, but we find great comfort in knowing that he's nearby, right? We want God to sit on the sidelines, and when we need him, we'll call upon his name. Somebody recently posed uh, the question to me that, uh, was there anything or is there anything more unhelpful in the world than a small child who just wants to help? Right? You got small kids, you understand what I mean, right? They want to help, but they only slow things down. They only make things more complicated than if they would just sort of get out of the way. Well, many Christians find nothing more annoying than a God who dares to say, let me do and let me take care of you. It makes... Life more complicated to have the God of the Bible say that to us because it, it wrestles control away from us and it forces us to face the fact that in the scenario of who's helping who, we are the unhelpful child. We're the one in the way. And God is the patient parent tasked with fixing what we break and cleaning up our messes. Perhaps we could turn that question around and ask if there's anything more unhelpful to God than one of his children just trying to help him out. <laughs> Israel, they want God to clean up their mess. This is what we read about in chapter 10. And then after initially saying no, the text says that when God had had enough of their misery, he agrees to graciously step in and do something. Jephthah is that something. There's some debate among scholars, guys that want to make the Bible to me more complicated than it has to be. They say, no, 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 Israel chose Jephthah and God just sort of chose to come in on the back end and sort of anoint Jephthah. But I believe Jephthah is God's gracious provision. I think the first way the writer of Judges hints at that is in the way that uh, the people of Israel have treated Jephthah. It sort of mirrors and matches the way they have treated God. But I also see, I think we see a second hint in the fact that the way God and Jephthah both initially respond to Israel sort of mirrors and matches one another as well because what both of them realize is that desperate people tend to make pledges to God, right? But then they under-deliver once their mess is cleaned up, right? This is what both God and Jephthah note. God in chapter 10, Jephthah here in chapter 11. Jephthah has this, uh, his initial reaction to Israel's ask and cry for help is the same as God's was in chapter 10 when Israel came to him. He initially is hesitant to jump in. To quote uh, the great Michael Scott, oh, how the turntables, right? That's probably how he feels. Jephthah realizes and relishes the irony of the moment. Right? And the first question he has is, is what's in it for me? They offer to make him king of all Israel. And then he asks for assurances. 
This is a little bit nuanced, but he asked them for assurances. He wants to know that they won't double-cross him once he wins the war. And what Jephthah realizes, and I think anybody who's lived any length of time realizes, is that desperate people will often say anything and promise everything to get out of a jam. Right? How many of you, how many of us have promised God that if he would just do this, Right? Then we would do everything from be nicer to our spouse to move to Mongolia to be a missionary. Right? Desperate people often overpromise and then underdeliver once the buyer's remorse sets in at what they have pledged. Jephthah realizes this, but I think in addition, Jephthah knows what he is to them. What he is to them. Uh, they don't value him. They don't value him. Their relationship, his and Israel's relationship, is purely transactional. They need something he can only, only he can provide, and they will promise the world to him in order to have it. People who don't value you, but who just want to use you, often when they are done with you, they throw you back on the trash heap where they think they found you, and they do this by changing the rules of the game after the fact. It's a sophisticated version of crossing your fingers or saying, psych. Right? Now, I think the most obvious example of this in our world is in politics. I'm not going to spend but two seconds on this, but I think the sad reality is uh, that for many politicians, people are nothing more than a way to gain power. And you need to recognize that in this text, the people who go and talk to Jephthah, they are the politicians of Israel. And they are making promises. They are saying what they must to have what they want the most. And that has not changed in thousands of years. And to not see this is to be a fool. Well, Jephthah's no fool. And he wants something more, needs something more than a verbal pledge. He wants something more binding. Because from Joshua all the way to here to Jephthah, Israel has repeatedly pledged to God that if he will just deliver them one more time, they will not fail him again. They will not forget about him again, only to renege once they're out of the jam. So when Jephthah asked Israel why they would honor their word and their pledge this time, don't you sort of feel as if God is the one asking us that very same question? Right? Why will you not go back on your word again? Why will you actually do what you're promising to do once again? Why will this time be different than the last ten times I've come to your rescue? Well, the most usual answer is, um, I really mean it this time. Right? I wasn't really that sincere all the other times, but I really mean it this time. The problem is this. We said that very same thing the other ten times before too. <laughs> we really meant it then as well. If we are to be saved by God, we need something more than our own sincerity. And so as we move into verses 8 through 11, I think what we find is the firm foundation of our deliverance. We need something more than man's sincerity. We need God's activity if we are to be truly saved. Because think about it like this. If I'm saved by my sincerity, how could I ever be sure that I was sincere enough? What about the days when I don't feel it? the same way I felt it two years ago when I made a profession of faith or whatever it might be, right? How could I ever be sure that I was sincere enough? We need something. This is better news than this man-centered gospel of just walking out and really mean it. This is better news. We need salvation to be based on something firmer and more substantial than human emotion and sincerity. We need it to be based on God's act of grace and his sovereign decree. 
Jephthah says in the text here, hey guys, appreciate the promises. Sounds like a pretty good deal, but I need more than just a human pledge. We need God to be involved in this arrangement so that it will become an eternally obligatory covenant. And so what do the elders of Israel do? They agree to swear by the Lord. Now, we do that very lightly in our day, but in spite of the fact that Israel has once again fallen so far away from God, they would have not done that lightly. Calling God as your witness, swearing to the Lord was a big deal to them, and they understood that it would form a verbally but eternally binding covenant. It also, as, you, as the text notes, it made the deal public information. This was all going to happen in a ceremony, and so it made it public information so that um, if the leaders of Israel decided to do uh, Jephthah dirty and dirty and, and double-cross him, right, all of Israel would know, and fear of bad press and publicity would prevent them from hopefully double-crossing him. When they swore with God as their witness, you see, they were inviting God to take them down if they backed out, Right? That's what they were inviting him to do. God is my witness means if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, may God take me out. That's a pretty serious sort of thing to say. And so they hold a public ceremony in Mizpah and they make their agreement official before God. And this is where Jephthah finds his assurance. He finds his assurance in being part of a covenantal agreement with God as a central figure and actor. And friends, this is where we have and find our, our assurance as well, in the very same place, in being part of a covenantal agreement in which God is the main actor, and we call this covenant the gospel. Right? This is where we find our assurance. The gospel is a covenantal agreement between God and man. And here's the really interesting thing. In our text, the covenant sort of originates with Jephthah and the leaders. But in the gospel covenant, the gospel covenant is an agreement that originated with God and he invites man into. We weren't asking for it, but he pursued us and chased us down anyway. God is the main actor in this covenant. And that's really good news because every deal that a man has ever made has always had loopholes and escape clauses, fine print where one party can get out of the deal if the cost gets a little bit too high. But the gospel has no loopholes, no fine print. God does the work, and then he simply invites us to do this. Are you ready? Is this not the best gift of grace of all time? God does all the work and then simply just invites us to trust him when he says that is so. Right? We don't have to worry that God will back out if it gets too costly because he's already paid the ultimate price at the cross, we don't have to worry that God will return us when he figures out how busted up we are because he already knows. And yet he sent Christ to purchase our freedom and forgiveness anyway. This is where, friends, we have and find our assurance that the gospel is a covenant that we can't mess up because none of it depends on us anyway. We're not the missing link Right? God doesn't have a plan and we're the missing link and it all finally coming together. <laughs> That's good news. We're the orphan. That God invites into his home, to his table, to take care of and feed forever if we will simply accept his invitation. It is in the sureness in the sureness of God's presence and participation in the gospel that we find assurance for our salvation and our souls. Jephthah 
in the text is only satisfied that things will work out for him once he knows that God is involved in what happens to him. And I think similar, similarly, similarly, our souls are only satisfied in their wandering once we know God is in complete control of what happens to us. Um, the early church father, Augustine, if you're really fancy, you say Augustine. I don't say August, right? It's August, so it's Augustine. In his autobiography, uh, Confessions, uh, Augustine writes about his own, his own uh, heart's wandering. Uh, Augustine came to faith in Christ very late in life compared to many. And he writes about his own heart's wanderings to show us that every human heart remains restless until it finds rest in God because this is the way God created us, to find rest in him and him alone. Now, you think about, man, I feel like I found rest before. My career was fulfilling. I had a loving relationship, right? And for a moment, that might sort of assuage your soul. But these are simply good gifts given to us by God to be enjoyed. And they can be enjoyed as long as we don't try to use them as a replacement for God. Right? And our hearts are created only to fully rest in the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. And so much of Augustine's confessions, it illustrates the wandering, the, the restlessness that happens before we recognize this truth. And it really speaks about uh, the futility and the frustration in our pursuit to find rest in things other than Christ. Speaking to God, Augustine famously said this, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Wow. So much. We've been quoting that since 400 and something A.D. Because it still resonates today that our hearts are restless. And they remain restless until they find their rest in Christ. Because that's how we were made. Now, later, Augustine captures both his regret uh, over misused time and energy and then his fulfillment after finally realizing uh, the rest that is only available in Christ. And remember, he was late in life coming to faith. He writes this, Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. That's such a fascinating phrase, right? New to me, but eternal, right? Beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And as a person who was not a Christian until I was 28 years old, I can echo Augustine's regret over years wasted in other pursuits. But I can also, with Augustine, echo what he says and rejoice and tell you that it's never too late to get started in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Even old travelers can find rest and room in Hotel Christ. Jephthah found rest and assurance in the covenant that he, the elders of Israel, and God made. And now he has to turn his attention to trying to strike another agreement, a non-aggressive agreement with the Ammonites who come and say, Moses and Israel stole some of their daddy's ancient land and they want it back. So in verses 12 through 27, we sort of begin to talk about this forever guarantee of our deliverance. And so Jephthah is going to offer really a threefold rebuttal. They're going to say, your ancestors stole our land. We want it back. Jephthah offers a threefold rebuttal. Uh, the first is a historical correction. And I think that really if I had to summarize, and I think this is such a powerful word in the culture that we live in, I think that if, if I had to summarize what Jephthah says, it's this, guys, history can't be rewritten. They're at, you're asking me to rewrite history. Now, history can be repulsive and it can be regretted. I guess it depends on where you fall, Right? on the issue, right? But it can't be rewritten. What happened has happened. The first thing Jephthah notes is they didn't steal the land. 
You're asking me to rewrite history. We didn't steal the land. I think we have a map. Do we have that map, Josh, that we can show? And this sort of, this highlights the, the, the travels of the people of Israel from Egypt all the way from into Sinai and then all the way up into Israel. You can see on sort of the far top right there the word Moab. This is the, the area that they were traveling in. Now, you can note there that, that once they get to the bottom of what is uh, the Dead Sea, uh, they could have sort of just hugged the Dead Sea, but they go way around. And this is because of what uh, Jephthah says, right? And so here's kind of how he lays it out. Before Moses and Israel would ever cross any foreign borders as they were journeying from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan, before they would cross a foreign border, they would always do two things. First, they would ask for permission. And second, they would agree to pay really above market price for any supplies that they used while they journeyed. Jephthah cites two historical examples of this where they were told no, and rather than get aggressive, they just simply chose to detour around the place. They were not interested in a fight. Not yet. Right? And so the two examples, uh, Jephthah gives two different examples of when Israel did this thing. But then he gets to the Ammonites and Sihon and King and Moab and all this stuff. And what he, what he gets to is basically is that the Ammonites not only said no, Israel, you can't pass through our land, but they chose to pounce on Israel because they saw them as vulnerable. And when they made war with Israel, Jephthah's really clear, God defeated them. They made war with Israel. God defeated them. They lost the battle. And when they lost the battle, they lost the land, right? Because God gave it to Israel fair and square. And so Jephthah says, hey, you Ammonites, man, you guys need to repeat your ancient history course, right? Your, your historical recollections are incorrect because history can't be rewritten. They're asking, you're asking me to rewrite history. I can't do that. You can regret it, right? We have history we regret. Personal history, national history, world history. We have history we regret. And we regret some of it because it's very repulsive. Right? But ultimately it can't be rewritten. And this is what Jephthah is pointing out. Jephthah then moves on from his historical correction to a theological conviction as to why he just can't give the land back. And that is this. What God has done in the history of saving his people cannot be undone because not only is it a finished work, but it is a perfect work. Jephthah notes twice, God was the one who gave Israel the victory in the land. He points out rhetorically in verse 23 that what his opponents are asking him to do is to not just rewrite history, but to undo what God did, right? Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase, but you can't stuff toothpaste back in the tube. Go home and try this afternoon. It's hours of fun, right? You can't stuff toothpaste back in the tube. You can't uncrack eggs. And friends, you can't undo what God has done. You just can't. Now, this isn't theory, by the way, right? Somebody told me that one time. That's an interesting theory. This isn't theory because theories are generally true. Many, many are almost always true, but there remains a set of circumstances under which the theory may not hold up. It may be one in a million, right? But like Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, you got the office and Dumb and Dumber in one sermon right here. Man, I'm the total package, all right? But like Lloyd Christmas, right, from Dumb and Dumber, when he, she says there's a one in a million chance, he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. Right? That's how theories work. It may be one in a million, but there's a chance it might not hold up. But a law is different. A law is different. A law is proven to be true under all circumstances without exceptions. Now, there are very few laws. Gravity is a law. Go jump off a building if you don't believe me. Right? Don't really do that. Those death. Decay, the atrophy of matter, those are laws. 
God's decreed will, friends, it's a law. The inescapability and the unreversibility of God's work is a law. And all of this is due to God's immutability. Immutability. Immutability means that God cannot change. God cannot change. Not that he will not change. Will not change implies that the option was still there, but God just will not choose to. No, no, no. God cannot change. The option's not even on the table. God is perfect. The only reason for anything or anyone to ever change is that they're not perfect yet. But if you're already perfect, why would you ever have the need to change? Right? God cannot change. What Jesus has done is not only finished but perfect. And this is why we trust in the work of Christ alone because his work alone is perfect. Everything and everyone else can be improved upon, but not Jesus. Not the cross. Not the resurrection. It's perfection. The only way you can mess perfection up is to try and add something to it. How many of us have ruined a recipe that was perfect because we decided to put our own flair on it? The only way you can mess up perfection is to try and add something to it. In this case with Christ, your goodness, your decency, your morality, you ruin God's salvation recipe when you try to add something of your own to it. This is such good news, man. Because here's what that means. It means on your worst day, I mean, like you're kicking puppies and, and cursing your, your heritage or something, right? I mean, on your worst day, you don't have to worry that God is done with you or could never love someone like you. It also means this on your best day. I mean, like halos are forming around your head as you walk around town. When you are at the pinnacle, the zenith of your goodness and your decency, you can remember this. I still don't have anything to brag on but Christ and him alone. Right? Jephthah knows you can't undo what God has done. And he tells the Ammonites this, and he tells them sarcastically that they should learn to be content with whatever their gods have given them. And if they're not, maybe they need to get a new God. And that's why we can say in the very last section that as Jephthah offers his final objection to them, which is why now he's really in many ways sharing the gospel with them. You need to get a new God, right? So let's talk now about this frustrating proclamation of our deliverance. This claim, so so his last sort of objection, his rebuttal to their argument is that this land that they are claiming was stolen. Uh, Why has the argument never come up before now? Why has it been hundreds of years, right? Hundreds of years have gone by. Nobody has ever said a word about it. He gives examples, historical examples of Moabites and Ammonites who could have tried this tactic, but they didn't. He gives the examples of Balak and Balaam. You can read about them in Numbers 22 through 24. So why now? That's what Jephthah wants to know. Why now? If this was true, the issue would have been raised before now. And then he sort of leans in and says, if you press on with this course of action, you need to understand that God knows. He calls God to judge between Israel and Ammon. He says, you need to know God knows who is right and wrong in this situation, and he will not sit idly by in this battle. I think we all know which side God was on. And so really Jephthah's asking is, are you sure you want to do this? You might want to go home and think about it because your ancestors have tried this tactic before. They've made war with us before. 
it didn't end so well for them, it probably won't end so well for you either. Jephthah's confident, likely because he's a warrior in his own prowess, but also in God's power, because he knows God is with Israel in this battle. But what verse 28 does is it shows the Ammonites were not really interested in argument. They're really only interested in aggression. Facts and truth were inconsequential because they were insolent opponents. Paul uses that word. Robert read that to us in our confession and assurance time. He says that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, that before he was a Christian, he was an insolent opponent of God and the gospel. Before Paul was a preacher, he was a persecutor of the church. Before he was a missionary, he murdered Christians. And the reason why he did all of this is because Christians said Jesus was the Messiah and he hated them for converting specifically Jews to faith in Jesus because he genuinely believed. This is why he can write in verses 12 through 15 that he had acted in ignorance and unbelief. He genuinely believed that a Jew's decision to trust in Jesus, who the Jews denied was the Messiah, really damned those people and put the future of his nation in jeopardy. Right? He really believed that. But then he was converted. But before he was converted, he describes himself as an insolent opponent of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Right? That's one of those words. We'll read that. We'll use that. You'll go out this week and use the word insolent in conversation because it'll make you sound smarter than your friends. Right? But what does it mean to be an insolent opponent? Right? Well, insolent opponents don't care about the facts. They just want to fight. Right? That's what it means to be an insolent opponent. You don't care about the facts. You just want to fight. Now, I've got a great example for this. We've all been an insolent opponent at some point in our life. All of us at some point have been fighting with a spouse or a parent, and about halfway through the argument, we realize, oh, no, they're right, and we just keep fighting anyway because I'm not losing this argument. Right? You were an insolent opponent. You didn't care about what was true. You just wanted to make somebody black and blue. Right? That's what it means to be an insolent opponent. Well, Jephthah, again, he is sharing the gospel with the Ammonites in a sense. He's recounting the history of what God has done for Israel, even telling him, maybe you need to get a new God. Maybe you need to come over here and worship the God of Israel. But they'll hear nothing of it. They'll hear nothing of it. They're insolent opponents. They just want to fight. They don't care about the facts. And friends, as we share the truth of God's word and the gospel with other people, we need to remember that some people are going to be like the Ammonites and just be hostile. And we owe it to them. We owe it to them to witness to them. But we need to never forget that some, not all, but some will simply refuse to hear what we have to say. They've already decided that they won't bloody battle with God rather than to believe that the battle for their souls and their joy and their eternal freedom has been won by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So what do we do when that's the case? What do we do when we're like Jephthah, we're sharing the gospel with somebody, and it's very clear they don't want anything to do with it? Well, Jesus addressed the matter with something very odd-sounding in Matthew 7, 6, where he says, Don't give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, the setting here is so fascinating. Because in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus just said, don't judge others. And then five verses later, uh, five verses later, he's calling some people dogs and pigs. Right? That's pretty interesting. But what he means when he calls them dogs and pigs is they are, they are dogs and pigs in the sense that they can't make sense of what to do with the things of God any more than a dog knows what to do uh, with a Bible or a communion cup, quote unquote, holy things, or a hog knows what to do with a string of pearls. 
When you share the gospel, when you seek to correct others and convert others, sometimes, I don't like to tell you this, but I'm just telling you sometimes, it's like trying to convince a hog to see the value in what is holy or a dog in the value of a diamond. Right? In those cases, Jesus says, pray for the person and move on and hope for other opportunities in the future. Keep the door open, but move on. It's okay. It's okay. Because you couldn't save them anyway. Only he can do that. And you've not condemned them. They've done that to themselves. Of course, in that scenario, Jesus and I are presuming that you're actually sharing the gospel and talking about Jesus with other people. And if you guys learn to get to know me at all, you'll know I hate to presume, so I'll just ask. How's that going lately? How's that going? Sharing the gospel. Talking about Jesus. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you even just invited somebody to church? Possibly. Probably, could we say, given the statistical data about the number of Christians who actually share the gospel, if you evaluate that question honestly, you probably feel guilty about the answer because it's not one that you like to admit. But can I say this in as much love as I can muster up? Please don't just feel good, though, because you feel guilty. I'll talk about that for just a few minutes here. Don't just feel guilty, guys. Get up and go because Jesus said so. The recent trend among churchgoers this is an odd trend as they're gravitating towards preaching that leaves one feeling bad about themselves. Right? So this is the trend. We're, we're gravitating towards preaching that leaves us feeling bad about ourselves, which strangely makes people feel good about themselves because only a good person would feel bad when confronted with their sin. Right? Somewhere in the Bible, Second Opinions, Chapter 1, something like that. Right? It says it's good enough just to feel bad. It's good enough just to feel bad. Well, certainly, friends, it is the broken and contrite heart that God honors. And here's a very famous verse, Psalm 34, 17 through 18, says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Right? So that's, that's, that's what God is after, right? Crushed hearts, broken spirits. But the verses before these verses, which matter too, they say, verse 16 says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 14 of Psalm 34 says very simply, turn away from evil and do good, right? So don't just be brokenhearted and crushed over your sin. You should feel those emotions. But friends, in addition to that, you should turn away from it and do good. That's what repentance looks like. It's turning away and turning to, turning away from your sin and running to Jesus. So don't just feel guilty. Get up and go, because Jesus said so. Well, where did he say so? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? Pretty simple. Not complicated. But for some reason, we do cartwheels trying to get around obeying this. Anybody remember Simon Says? Remember that? We did whatever Simon said without hesitation. And if Simon didn't say to do it, we didn't do it. What if Christians live life as if it was a game of Jesus Says? 
What a simple but yet deeply gratifying way to live, to just do what Jesus says and don't do what he says not to do. And what did he say to do? He said to grow the number of his disciples. And how are we to do that? He says by teaching and showing other people who he is and what it looks like to serve, honor, follow, and go after him in the context of everyday life. Isn't that simple, man? Why do we have to make everything in Christianity so doggone complicated? I'm just an old football coach. If you can't explain it to me on a napkin, it won't make any sense. So forgive me if my view of this is so simplistic, but I don't understand what's so complicated about it. Just do what Jesus says and don't do what he says not to do. He said go make disciples, teaching others what he, what we, what he has taught us. New Journey was started eight years ago by people who were committed to one simple idea. We wanted to live life very intentionally for Jesus Christ by making disciples of him. So New Journey, I just ask you again, not to beat you up, I'm just asking, how's that going? How's that going? Too many of us have seen Christianity for far too long as a game of hide when it's a game of seek. We want the church to be a place to hide from the world. When Jesus said it's to be a group of people who seek out the world like he did, Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Are we really following him? Because if that's what he's doing and we're not behind him, are we really following him? Seek is the name of our game because it was the purpose of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. We call him that. We raise our hands when we sing of that, but do we live that? Seek and you'll find not only is God at work in and on others, but you'll also find that God has been at work in you. And you'll begin to experience more of him than you've ever imagined possible as you begin to live life on mission with him. We didn't read verse 29 of Judges chapter 11, but in verse 29, the Spirit of God rushes upon Jephthah, equipping him for the upcoming battle. Friends, I can promise you this, the Spirit of God will rush upon you too, preparing you for battle, equipping you for battle, and it will make the presence of God in your life known in undeniable and unbelievable ways. Now, I'm just being honest with you as I wrap up, and I know we've pushed our time limits today. I want that. I, pers- I want that for me. But I want that for you. I want that for us. I want that for our church. To be the kind of people who are experiencing the power and the spirit of God as we live life on mission with him that is not safe and contained within these four walls. But is lived every day, experienced every day. We just have to seek him. Right? And here's the good news, man. If we seek We don't find him. He finds us. (laughs) He finds us. And he will give us as much of himself as we can handle. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in these moments and just simply ask that your spirit have his way. Move in power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As David and the band prepare to lead us in a time of response, Just encourage you guys to be obedient to the Spirit. I'll be in the back of the room. If anybody needs to talk, pray about anything, you can do business with the Lord right where you're at. You can come to the front of the room. I know that can be an intimidating thing. And while this is not an altar, it is an altar in the sense that we bring something here and we leave it here. And and it, and it belongs to God from that day forward and we don't carry it anymore. So we just encourage you to be obedient to the Spirit as He moves.